Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Hi, everybody. Hey. Guess what? We have seen a lot of each other recently because Steve and I and our families just took that long-delayed week-long trip to Universal and Disney World, and we had a wonderful time. Steve and his wife did all the planning, and it made all the difference. We would have had a miserable time on this trip if we had been in charge (laughs) of planning it ourselves because we could not handle this sort of challenge, but they handled it with a palm, and we have had an excellent time. If this episode posts a little late, it will be because of that. We had delayed this trip for two and a half years because of COVID, and including one time when we were set to leave on the trip when we suddenly all got COVID. This time, nobody got COVID, and everything was great. And Steve had ended up taking two trips to Universal himself during COVID and had gotten COVID on both trips. But Steve, I take it you did not get COVID on this trip. Uh, No. <laughs> okay. Well, we are doing November of 1964, and uh, we're beginning with Amazing Spider-Man, as we usually do. On the cover of this one, it tells us that this is the end of Spider-Man. And it does have this unique cover of Spider-Man cowering in fear as the Sandman runs amok. And this is not something you usually see on the cover of a superhero book, at least not in the mid-60s. Great emotion from Dicko. Absolutely. You, you really see the fear and helplessness through the anonymous mask of Spider-Man there. Yes. If you remember, Spider-Man had to run away from Green Goblin because he'd heard that his aunt had had, I think, a heart attack. So he runs out because family first, but everybody else only sees that, oh, he just ditched out and didn't want to fight Green Goblin. J. Jonah Jameson is just uh, upsettingly happy (laughs) about this entire thing. (laughs) He is uh, happy. He, he, he just has this really unnatural grin on his face throughout this entire issue. So we see a little montage of all Spider-Man's villains, essentially jealous that they weren't the ones who defeated Spider-Man. All of the different heroes who are thinking, you know, this just doesn't seem like the guy I know. Well, except Wasp. She's, you know, hates the guy because, you know, spiders and wasps or something. As always, she says, wasps and spiders are natural enemies, so I can't honestly say I feel sorry for him. Like, as you've pointed out before, they they aren't even natural enemies. (laughs) (laughs) But this is the only time she ever has a wasp-like personality, and he does not have a spider-like personality. It's not like he has the general demeanor of a spider or that she has the, the personality of a wasp. Pete heads out to go to school, and he's really worried about leaving May alone, but he does so. And at the end, he just uh, runs home again. You know, Aunt May is going to need so much help. But he gets there, and she's just having a nice, pleasant tea with, with her friend, and everything seems to have gone just well. But they're running out of medicine. So whatever sort of medicine she's supposed to be taking for her heart attack, they are just about out. Apparently, healthcare issues were already a thing back then. <laughs> Anyway, of course, Flash Thompson is the only one who's still loyal to Spider-Man. And then meanwhile, though, Liz really has warmed up to Peter and really seems to be genuinely interested in him now. Basically, is hinting that she wants him to ask her out for a date. Specifically, Liz says, by the way, there's a new Peter Sellers movie at the drive-in tonight that I've been dying to see. So what, this would be like Pink Panther or something? I'm trying to imagine what this would be. I mean, I'm guessing. Uh, Probably not Doctor Strangelove. 
<laughs> Most like, I don't know if that was really thought of as a Peter Sellers movie, was it? I don't know. Maybe it was at the time. I mean, that would have uh, been right. That's 1964. So I would like to believe that Liz Thompson is broadly hinting that Peter should take her to see Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> Pete is thinking, okay, well, after school, I need to figure out a good way to make some money. So he says, hey, I'll just sell my image to a trading card company. And the guy's like, nah, Spider-Man, nobody likes you anymore. You know, everybody thinks you're a coward. We couldn't sell a card with you on it if we tried. The guy in the uh, office ends up blowing smoke in Spidey's face as he hangs upside down, which I note looks very much like the framing of the upside down kiss from the first Spider-Man uh, Sam Raimi movie. <laughs> yes, sort of the opposite of that. Yes, exactly. Someone online asked, is this supposed to be John Waters? And I'm like, well, in my head canon, it is now. (laughs) (laughs) He does look a little bit like him. After getting rebuffed there, he then sees some what he thinks are going to be jewelry robbers uh, getting ready for robbery. He thinks, oh, I can break this up. It will be good for my reputation. And it's also part of my core, <laughs> yes. my core identity. But then he's realizing that since he is the only thing that's taking care of Aunt May and she has nobody else, he's afraid to really get into any superheroing because he might get shot. He might get hurt. And then what would happen to Aunt May? He just really feels he can't superhero anymore. So he just calls the police and tells them about the, about the jewelry robbers. So then he gets home. The doctor's there and he, of course, freaks out. Oh, my God, what's wrong? It's like, I was just coming by for a checkup. It's all good. You know, just make sure she keeps taking that medicine. Of course, you know, there is no more medicine. So he's still trying to figure out ways to make some money. Then he's like, you know, Betty's probably still mad at me. Let me go at least see if I can patch things up with her. And she wants nothing to do with him. J. Jonah Jameson is like, dude, I'm in such a good mood. I even want to see Peter. Where's he been? Betty knows what the deal is and tells him that she's sick. And J. Jonah Jameson says, well, never let it be said that big hearted J. Jonah Jameson doesn't look after the people who work for him. Let's do something generous for them. Send her a get well card. (laughs) (laughs) And don't seal the envelope. You can send it for a penny cheaper that way. Peter's still worrying about May, and we see, once again, as you pointed out, Venetian blinds on panels two and three of page eight. I guess you could say one, two, three, and four all have Venetian blinds one way or another. Always Dicka's sign of inner anguish. Yes. So he is trying to call Betty at home and she won't pick up and she knows it's him and he knows she's there. And we get a really evocative image of him in uh, panel six on page eight of him just holding his Spider-Man mask kind of uh, anxiously and pensively as he hunches over in a chair with uh, shadows on his face, you know, saying, I wonder how Betty would feel if she knew I'm Spider-Man. I'm the one who's risked his life to save her so often. Anyway, so he's like, oh, well, at least things can't get any worse. And then who should happen to be right in front of him but the Sandman? Often with Spider-Man, they'll be like, oh, you know, last we saw this villain, he was in prison. But here's the story of how that villain escaped from prison. With Sandman, they don't even bother to do that. It's like, well, obviously he could have escaped from prison any time because he's the Sandman and it would be literally impossible to imprison him in any way. So, uh, yeah, the Sandman's out. Let's just let's just go with that. You can simply fill in in your own heads how the Sandman got out of prison. Sandman is trying to get him, and I think that it's one of those things where he has been revealed as beatable at this point, so he wants another go at him. Now, one thing that's weird is on page 12, panel 2, we see Sandman climbing walls. Yeah. Is that 
uh, is that a thing that we see Stan Man doing much? I don't it's seem to not think entirely it. unbelievable. I saw him climbing walls and I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. You know, if you're made of sand, you should be able to climb walls. Okay, now that I'm saying it out loud, it does sound a little strange, but Dicko <laughs> Dicko is amazing at selling things, and Dicko sold it to me. I will buy any bill of goods from Steve Dicko. Right. Uh <laughs> Meanwhile, Spider-Man is still thinking, I can't get involved in any superhero stuff. So he runs away from uh, Sandman, and there happens to be a news crew that catches it again. So there's more television evidence of Spider-Man running away from from a supervillain. Spider-Man thinks to himself, I never was the best-loved guy in town, but right now, Khrushchev could probably beat me in a popularity contest. Once again, somebody talking about how, oh, well, all his past victories must just have been publicity stunts because, you know, ad executives in this world um, <laughs> are right up there with masks in this world. Yes, truly amazing. Meanwhile, we see that Johnny Storm is really upset by all of the piling on to Spider-Man. People are pointing up that he has always had a rivalry with Spider-Man, but then he's like, yeah, but I mean, come on, he's no coward. I mean, I, I've seen the guy fought ne- next to the guy before. You know, something else is going on. Although I do notice that on panel three on page 14, he uses his fire to unplug the TV. once again it's you know his flame as green lantern's green energy there i think he's just burning through the cord i oh no you're right he's not just burning through the cord he's actually yanking it out of the slot with flames yes okay (laughs) so then he goes flies up in the sky and puts up a big flaming message a very wordy message for something like this as spider-man meet me at our last meeting place behind the boathouse no (laughs) so this is the first time they've established that you know we've seen them and it says the meeting place referred to by the torch was shown in strange tales annual number two 1963 which is to say the top of the statue of liberty which i will point out is a place that it would be absolutely impossible for spider-man to ever get to (laughs) spider-man swings from building to building and suffice it to say there are no buildings looming over the statue of liberty it would be very hard for him to get there (laughs) <laughs> uh he just takes the ferry and then just yes. swings from there yes well yeah, yeah i mean he he would basically just have to take the ferry and then crawl he could crawl up the side but it's really the worst possible place to meet spider-man how about oh, Grand yeah. central station how about any number one of a dozen other new york landmarks? but on like on top of the chrysler building or something like that yes but pete of course doesn't show up because he has to take care of his aunt johnny is actually pretty depressed because he's like wow man what's going on with all this then we have flash thompson defending spider-man again i just really like Flash Thompson, I just really like this portrayal of him. And this is something that Lee is just really good at, is not having people be all good or bad. I think there's a general assumption in America that if you are a bad person, then you are also a hypocrite. If you are a bad person, you do not have a spine. You do not have any stick to You know, you do not have consistent beliefs. And that is just never the way Lee writes. Flash Thompson is a bully. But he is loyal to Spider-Man, and he is the only person who is right about Spider-Man. You know, he's right. Spider-Man is not a coward. And he's the only person in the entire comic who understands that and believes it. He's the only person who's willing to say it, including Pete. Pete is never willing to stand up for Spider-Man because he's always afraid of drawing suspicion onto himself. Likewise, Chichon Jameson will always be seen as someone who is a uh, incorruptible journalist. 
Well, not always. He'll usually be portrayed as an incorruptible journalist. Sometimes they'll back off on that a little bit. Yes. But Flash is never certainly wavers in his dedication to Spider-Man. And I think it's a real testament to the complexity of these characters and to the integrity of these characters. Writing a character who has integrity and consistency goes so far to make this world a believable, fun place to be. The two places where I sort of learned during my youth that essentially everyone is the hero of their own story. One of them was from a Marvel comic. It was some nondescript, I think Iron Man, or maybe it was Marvel team up with Iron Man back in the 80s with a villain named Magma, completely generic villain. But it was one of these things where, you know, he became a supervillain because something happened to his family and he won, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, oh, wow. So he really thinks that he's doing the right thing here. He's not just an yeah. evil mustache twirling villain. The other one was, of course, otherwise known as Ramona the Great. No, it, was, no, it wasn't that one. Which otherwise one known it? as Sheila the Great. was Otherwise known as Sheila book. the Great. Yes, that's what I meant. Because after I'd read the Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing and seen that she was just written as this antagonist, then I get to see her from her own eyes. She's like, wow. Okay, yeah. So, yeah. you know, learning some lessons there. And yeah, some of it came from the Marvel Universe that Stan Lee very much shaped. So after we see Flash defending Spider-Man, Liz then comes bursting into Peter Parker's house and tells Peter that Flash has gotten a Spider-Man costume and is putting it on and is going to walk around the streets. He figures that's a very dangerous thing to do and Spider-Man will rescue him if he gets in trouble. Now, this is not the first time we have seen Flash Thompson put on a Spider-Man suit and get himself in trouble. Uh, and I think I it's not the first time that we then, I think last time she called, but this that time too, Liz desperately turned to Pete and said, oh, Flash is dressing up as Spider-Man and he's going to get himself in trouble. So this is definitely a sort of repeated story beat. This is something that we've seen happen before, but that was a long time ago. That was, you know, about 10 issues ago. I think that was issue number five with Dr. Doom. And it's time. They've earned the right to do it again. It was a fun storyline that time. It's fun this time. Yes. Flash in his Spider-Man costume happens to run across some car thieves. And he's like, oh, wow. Okay. Just regular non-superpowered car thieves. You know, they think I'm Spider-Man. I can go ahead and, you know, bluff them here. And then they're like, oh, well, you know, it's either go to jail or fight Spider-Man and go to jail. So let's just go ahead and fight Spider-Man here. Uh, so they end up beating up Flash. Dicko does a great job of showing that the costume does not fit Flash. Yes. This is yes. an ill-fitting costume. Yeah, and just in general, you know, you can just tell every second you look at this that this is not Spider-Man. No kid reading yeah. this comic is going to get confused and think this is Spider-Man. It's an ill-fitting costume. The body language is different. He's moving like a non-powered, awkward teenage kid. He's not moving like Spider-Man at all. He's got no grace to him. And it's just amazing that Dicko can pull that off. If you were drawing tryout pages from Marvel Comics and they told you, like, have someone in a Spider-Man costume come out, but indicate to us through his body language that it's not really Spider-Man, you know, nobody would be able to do that. They'd go, that's impossible. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take that job. But uh, Dicko can pull I, I, it I wouldn't say people would say it's impossible. That's actually the kind of challenge that oftentimes editors will give to a penciler that they're thinking of actually giving work to. Uh, one thing that I remember hearing, and this may have been Bob Shrek, but it might have been someone else. A comic book artist should be able to, if they see this in a script, be able to draw it. Uh, there are some French fries covered in ketchup and mustard in a puddle. 
<laughs> yeah. That'd be hard. So I, I think that uh, this is a challenge that might very well be issued by an editor. I tried to be a comic book penciler just briefly, and I was a pretty good artist. I was pretty good at rendering things. And then I tried actually drawing a couple of pages of comics on like page two. Well, at one point I was trying to draw comics and I had to draw a horse. And I was like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, I can't, can't do that. So that comic stopped when the horse entered the story and never got finished. A couple of years later, I was trying again with a comic story and I got to, someone was standing on top of a pile of garbage. Like it was like the town dump. Right. And that is the hardest thing in the world to draw is draw oh, yeah. a pile of garbage because you really have to deal with the question of like, how much detail am I drawing here? Like, cause you could yeah. draw every individual piece of garbage, which would take you until eternity. There are some artists who will do that. I mean, give that to Jeff Darrow. He is going to draw <laughs> every single bit of trash in that pile. Right? But uh, you can't do that. I mean, yeah, Jeff no. Darrow could maybe get away with it, but there is a level of artistry here that is beyond me in terms of knowing how to give the impression of a pile of garbage without actually drawing all of the detail of a pile of garbage. And that's the heart of the art. That is the, the core of the art of being a comic artist. And I was not ready for that. And so I gave up on that story as well, even though I had avoided horses this time around. Yeah, I uh, well, were you the one who was writing the one with the horses? Yes. <laughs> so then you 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 did that to yourself. I did. I didn't know. I, I thought, like, <laughs> what? I'll write in some horses. I didn't know they were hard to draw. I wrote it first <laughs> and then I drew it later. So, uh, yeah, but similar stuff like that is one of the reasons that I uh, ended up abandoning my idea of being a penciler and ended up turning to inking because, yeah, I, I that kind of stuff. Or like if it's like, oh, someone's eating something while they walk in the room. What are they eating? Are they eating pizza? Are they eating a granola bar? Are they eating a hamburger? Are they, you know, just like, uh, you got to think about it because if you don't really think about it, it's going to just going to be like, what is that in their mouth? So here is something else that I am wondering how things are colored in your uh, issue. On page 17 and 18, the cop who finds Flash Thompson, is he a white man or a black man? He is black. He is black in the original. I am, so again, to for our people following at home, but Steve is looking at the recolor issues from Marvel Unlimited. I'm looking at scans of the original pages. Good spotting. Dicko was starting to put in more characters of color in his comics, and he looks like he has African-American skin on page 17. By the time we get closer to him on page, page 18, he has that creepy, bizarre gray skin that they would sometimes give African-American characters. I think that my black friends would call that ashy. And that he yes, he is very ashy. But uh, <laughs> I, uh, I don't, well, I, and I don't know whether to give Dicko the credit on this. Sometimes Dicko will draw in African-American characters and will actually like put in cross-hatching on their face to right. indicate that they're black, which is never, I think, the best decision. But in this case, he doesn't do it. So I don't know whether Dicko intended for this to be an African-American character. But the original colorist, presumably Stan Goldberg, did go ahead and color that character as a gray African-American, like they sometimes say. <laughs> yeah, and I, I was trying to remember if this was the first sort of incidentally African-American character that we'd had in, in Marvel Comics. I think so it may far. be. Yeah, because I but I think I remember something earlier with Ditko drawing a character that had you know that sort of cross hatching like you said on him to make him look darker in the in the inks i seem to have an idea of that before but somehow i'm getting the impression this is just one of like hey there's a cop uh, you know the cop is black they're black cops why not casual yes. diversity they call it these days which is better than casual racism yes 
right. So the next day at school, Flash has a big old shiner on his right eye. Pete tries to talk to him about this and is in no mood to talk about this. So he turns on Peter Parker, who, of course, is Spider-Man, but he does not know that. Pete, after school, is he trying to find Betty or does he just happen to stumble across her? I guess he just stumbles across her. So he's going by uh, someplace in town and there is a movie theater and coming out of the movie theater are Betty and some upstanding young fellow in a suit that she seems to be very happy with. Uh, I believe, isn't this who turns out to be Ned Leeds later? Yeah, surely this is Ned Leeds, who, but he is unnamed at this point. Seemingly might be a one-off dude, but it, he is not a one-off dude. He will eventually <laughs> marry Betty, and this is the beginning of the end of the Peter-Betty relationship, because Betty is clearly into some other dude who presumably will be soon named as Ned Leeds. Page 19, we have another echo of the whole uh, Pete walking away uh, with slumped shoulders in a gritty city. Uh, kind of thing that we've seen at least twice before now. So Peter Parker decides that's it. I am done with this whole Spider-Man thing. I have more important things with my family, and I'm just going to go ahead and throw away the spider suit and not going to do it. But then Aunt May is like, look, you have been spending too much time doting on me. You are a teenager. You need to go out there and live your life. And I'm not a quitter. And you shouldn't be either. Don't spend your whole life just taking care of me all the time. At one point, she says, I'm feeling much better, doctor. I feel like a spry, young 60-year-old. So however old she is, she's old enough that it would be humorous to consider that she was only 60. It's odd because, you know, it's, they're implying that she might be like 50 or 60 years older than Peter, which usually is not the case. Usually one's aunt is not 50 or 60 years older than you. So Pete reads there's another anti-Spider-Man editorial in the Bugle, and he's like, okay, that's it. You know what? Aunt May is not a quitter. I'm not a quitter either. I'm going to go ahead and get my spider outfit out of the trash that I just threw it into. Then I'm going to very dramatically... Go ahead and get into my Spider-Man costume, and I am going to get back into the game. So that is it for that issue. Yes, so I think this is a good issue. It's the second issue in a row where they're really dumping on poor Peter. They're really, you know, giving him a rough time. But I think that both Lee and Ditko sort of think of that as the brand of the book. You know, occasionally they'll have an issue where things go well for Pete, and then they'll say, like, oh, this is an unusual issue of Spider-Man. For once, we're giving Peter a happy ending. So even when they give him a happy ending, they explicitly say that is not our brand. Our brand is taking it really hard on Pete. And indeed, last issue and this issue, the poor guy is having a tough time. He's even losing Betty. You know, it's an odd issue. It's There's not a lot of action in it. He is explicitly refusing to fight the entire issue and never gets into a big fight scene. Spend very little time on the Sandman establishing where he came from or what he wants or what he's doing. It's just he's very much an incidental character. But it's a good issue. It's grueling in a good way. <laughs> it is It is purely Ditko. Purely Ditko. All right, let's quickly do Fantastic Four number 32, Death of a Hero. Who, who, who is the Invincible Man? Now, of course, we've already got the Invisible Girl, and now we've got the Invincible Man, which requires you to be very careful with how you pronounce these things. Never before such daring drama, such raw realism. I'm not sure I'd call this realism, but okay. We've got a shape-shifting alien to, trying to destroy the city. They, of course, are trying to cure Ben, and then they're like, oh, we cured Ben, he's human, but then he has lost his memory and doesn't remember who Alicia is or anything, and then they're like, okay, we've got to go ahead and uncure Ben now and never let him know that we cured him and that it cost him his memory because we know he wouldn't like that. Meanwhile, we get another beautiful Kirby collage, which, of course, is spelled with two Ks, where we see... <laughs> 
a as long as we don't have a crazy Kirby collage. Crazy Kirby collage. <laughs> We've got a gigantic beam is shot out of. They don't explicitly say, but it is presumably shot out of the fifth quadrant of the Andromeda Galaxy. To oh, a spoiler alert, dude. <laughs> so it's interesting. So this issue is presented as a mystery. They say specifically on the first page, introducing the surprise villain of the season, deadly mysterious, the invincible man. Can you guess who he is? Question mark, question mark. <laughs> and unlike, say, a couple of issues ago where they had the woman in red in Doctor Strange and was like, can you guess who she is? And then they're like, she's Cleopatra, which you could not possibly have guessed based off any of the information we included in this story. This one it's very much a play for a mystery, and it's very much it's a play for a mystery that is entirely solved by the fact that if you read Fantastic Four 18, there are a tremendous number of clues that give away that this is the Super Scroll. But if you have not read Fantastic Four 18, then you wouldn't. And they're sort of rewarding readers who have been sticking around for a while. So then we see the old volcano where we all saw the Super Scroll sealed up. We see the beam arrive there. We see him break out. We see that he can use all the powers of the Fantastic Four. We don't see his face, but come on, if you know who the Super Scroll is, it's pretty obvious. We see the Super Scroll again. We don't see his face, but we see him fly as Johnny. We see him enter the city. We see him stretch as Reed. So last issue, you know, we had this sudden shocking reveal at the end that the only person who could fix Sue after her medical issue was her father, who was a fugitive from justice. And this was totally unexplained. And it's like, wait, why is her father in jail? Why is he a fugitive from justice? What is going on? But he turned himself back in so he could cure her, so he could fix her. There was never any explanation. Well, we are right back into that storyline because he is now sitting back in jail. And this person who is, spoiler alert, the Super Scroll, comes in, changes into him, then sends him back to the Andromeda Galaxy and takes him over. Meanwhile, we have Sue and Johnny going to the prison to visit their father, and we get a little flashback that this is like the really most in-depth flashback we've had for anybody except for Dr. Doom so far. They're with their loving parents, but then their dad and mother get into a car accident. They suffer a blowout, so it's nobody's fault. One of their, I guess, for not buying fresh tires for the car, it's their fault. But uh, <laughs> I mean, t- tires back before they had steel belted were, were you know, I think notoriously uh, unreliable. Yes, but uh, this is why you should always get fresh tires, kids, because they have wood and the mom ties. And then the dad descends into drunken gambling and uh, says, what for? Mary isn't there. She's gone. I'll bet it all on the red, he says, next to a roulette table. And then you do have kids. (laughs) He borrows from another word, loan shark, and gets into a fight with him. And a gun goes off and kills the man. Now on page, uh, okay, so on page eight, uh, in that panel where the gun goes off, that panel does not look like it's showing what we are being told we're being shown. Uh, And I wonder how much of that might be trying to get around the Comics Code Authority and trying to say in the words more or less what happened, but then, uh, you know, just draw it to where it'd be like, no, 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 no one's getting shot. (laughs) Clearly, he goes to jail for manslaughter, so presumably somebody got shot. But yes, uh, Kirby is being uh, sort of reticent to show any any actual bullets entering any actual bodies. So then Sue and Johnny visit their father in prison. Sue says, we're trying to get you out of parole, do everything we can. And their father says, that will not be necessary. What What do you mean? I shall show you what I mean. Prepare yourselves for the surprise of your life. During my years in prison, I've worked in the prison laboratory. Nobody ever suspected I was making myself invincible. And then he himself seems to have confused the words invincible and invisible because then he turns invisible and uh, <laughs> gets away. And they're like, oh my God, what's going on? 
Now we get to the biggest problem with this issue. My huge problem with this issue is that he has told them in jail, I want to make myself invincible. Well, then there is a supervillain attacking the town who calls himself the Invincible Man. And they just assume this must be our dad, but he is wearing a costume that completely covers his entire body, including his entire face. And they have no reason to believe this is their dad. This is the Super Scroll. This is someone with superchaining powers. Why can't the Invincible Man be unmasked and be clearly their father? And then, because not only do Sue and Johnny assume this is their dad and assume that we can't attack him and we've got to take it easy on this guy and keep Reed and Ben from attacking him very hard, but then the whole town figures this out. And the whole town is like, oh, clearly the Fantastic Four are taking it easy on the Invincible Man. And of course, this being a Marvel comic, they all turn against the Fantastic Four and blame them. What they We see in the morning news, it says, why do the FF pull punches with the Invincible Man? But if, again, this guy clearly looked like Franklin Storm, then everybody in the press would be like, okay, this is Sue and Johnny's, you know, they don't have secret identities. This is Sue and Johnny's father. That's why the Fantastic Four are taking it easy. Instead, this is all just based on this one line where they each happen to have used the word invincible. And the whole thing makes no sense. If you've got a scroll, have them actually change their face. It just, it makes no sense for the Invincible Man to have the costume design that he does. Anyway, Reed works up some sort of super fancy backpack. They, of course, end up fighting at the 1964 World's Fair. We have seen the Marvel comics go back repeatedly over and over and over again to the 1964 World's Fair, which I believe our mother was living in New York in 1964. She attended this World's Fair. It was genuinely a big deal. Our mother was one of six children, and they didn't take the kids out for entertainment very much because everything was being multiplied by eight, but uh, they did take them to the World's Fair. Reed uses his Super Science Gadget to force the Invincible Man to change back to the Super Scroll. This is the big revelation of the issue and then sends the Super Scroll back to the fifth quadrant of the Andromeda Galaxy. He then explains how he was able to figure the whole thing out. But then they, it's sort of bizarre because there's this location change. They send the scroll back and then they go back to their headquarters and they go like, all right, now they're going to send your dad back. But we're in a different location now. Why wouldn't you want to stay in the same location and assume that wherever location we sent the scroll back from, it will be the same location they will send your dad back to. But they do not do that. And then they send the dad back, but Reed's like, Oh, wait, I just realized uh, they might want to booby trap your dad. It says, we must still be wary of any trick, any deadly deception. And indeed, Reed, you took a little too long to figure that out, because that's exactly what they do. And they booby trap him, and the dad has to throw himself on a bomb and keep it from killing everybody. But it does kill the dad, and he gives a little speech. says, somehow I found my courage, so perhaps I've made up for the years I've wasted. That's why you must not cry at last. I've regained my pride. And then he dies. And we have a cop that looks all like Richard Nixon who comes in and and says, how did it happen, Richards? And Richard says, I'll give you a full account later. But for now, let us say that he died a hero. This is a good issue. I It's a nice payoff to last issue. You know, we had this sort of shocking reveal at the end of the last issue that their father was a convict and they sort of had to pay that off. And they pay it off very well in this issue. I think it's, you know, it's a moving tale of his fall from grace, uh, elements of Betty Brand's brother, elements of Doctor Strange. But that's the story, story Lee is good at telling. He told it well in Spider-Man. He told it well in Doctor Strange. And he tells it well here. It's a moving story. It's a good character. 
it's fun to get the Super Scroll back. It's fun to get a Playfair mystery for once where we're actually given lots of clues and kids follow along at home, especially if they read Fantastic Four 18, can put it all together and figure it all out in a fair way. Kickstarter doing a great job making Kirby. So I should say, you know, you always have this problem in these issues where the villain really doesn't have any thing that he is doing except for wanting to kill the Fantastic Four. Like that is his only motivation. But then the Fantastic Four is sort of taken out of action and then the villain has to do other things. So then the Super Scroll just starts robbing banks. And it's like, why <laughs> would the Super Scroll ever want to rob a bank? Does the Super Scroll need quick cash? This like I guess the whole idea is that he's just trying to humiliate the Fantastic Four and he's just trying to make them look bad and discredit them by going like, here is a villain that the Fantastic Four refused to fight full-throatedly. And so I have to do stuff like Rob Banks just to give the just to give examples to the public of here are things that the Fantastic Four is not stopping this villain from doing, even though I myself have no interest whatsoever in robbing a bank. You know, uh, that what that reminds me of a little bit is, you know, I, I think I've mentioned before that I like to play the Marvel Comics deck building card game called uh, Legendary. And uh, one of the plots that or uh, schemes that the bad guys can do in that game is Midtown Bank Robbery. And yes. technically, you know, officially, you're supposed to randomize everything you do. So you have a random plot and a random villain and a random mastermind and you know you just go ahead and pick them. most people don't i don't uh but that means that sometimes you can have things like galactus is committing <laughs> a midtown bank robbery <laughs> while also eating the planet so <laughs> yes. uh yeah that that reminds me of that a little bit it's like wait super scroll is doing a midtown bank robbery that doesn't make well any there sense. was he did one of the most i think one of the most overrated mcu movies one of the most overrated marvel movies is the first avengers movie which i think is you know not in my top half of the mcu movies but you know you always have this problem with the avengers like how do you give captain america things to do when you know Thor is so much more effective at taking care of things than Captain America. But there's this ridiculous moment where aliens are attacking the city and just marauding through the city and seemingly trying to kill everybody in New York. And then at one point, the aliens suddenly like rob a bank somehow, or the aliens are like inside this bank menacing people and Captain America has to burst in through the wall of the bank and save the bank. And it's like, why are you saving a bank? This is just like, well, that's what Captain America is good at doing. So we've got to give Captain America a save a bank thing, even though all the other Avengers are out, you know, wailing on all these aliens that are trying to kill everybody in the city. So uh, the other thing I wanted to point out, well, a couple things I wanted to point out. On page 14, that is a really gross and weird image of Reed Richards turning himself into a giant spring to spring himself forward on that first panel. <laughs> yes, that it is. It, it's just, I don't know what what's up with that, but that that just doesn't work well. The other thing is that Reed is really a dick to his teammates in this issue. Um, yes. Now, I mean, I think that it is portrayed as they screwed up and he's now taking charge. But, you know, at one point, Johnny comes into his lab and he says, Reed, Sue and I have been thinking the best thing to do is. And he says, you two have done enough thinking. I'll handle that department from now on. You get ready for action. We've got work to do. Uh, and there are a couple more incidents in here. Yeah. So on the next page, uh, thing says, hold it, stretch. What in the ding dong Sam Hill is going on here? Reed just says, stow it, Ben. I'm through explaining 
you three are going to learn to follow orders blindly if need be. Now, let's get to that fair. <laughs> and there's at least one more uh, incident in here where he's just really being that way to all of his teammates. But uh, And we'll also see him be that way in uh, the issue of Strange Tales that we're getting up to in a little bit. So, yes. uh, you know, Reed is um, having a bad month. <laughs> I think is what it comes down to. He's in a bad mood this month. He is in a t- toxic downward spiral, seemingly. He is, uh, he is <laughs> like Kanye. He is, uh, he is doubling down. He is not apologizing. <laughs> he is every uh, every opportunity you give him to appear on a podcast. He is getting worse and worse. <laughs> and then, of course, all this had at the end. We have another letter from George R. R. Martin, which is to say, last time we had a letter from him, he was just George R. Martin, which is his real name, and now he has realized I want to be a fantasy author and. If there's one thing I know about fantasy authors, it's that they have the middle initials RR. So I am going to re-fancy myself as George R.R. R. Martin, uh, which has happened between his letter, and I think it was Fantastic Four number 20, and now his letter in Fantastic Four number 32. And um, so we are getting to see the evolution of George R.R. R. Martin. He is still a big fan of Marvel Comics and so- is raving about it. So as I said, on Marvel Unlimited, they often do not print the letters pages, so I missed that. However, they do sometimes print letters pages, more often in Spider-Man than other ones. And did you notice the letter in the Spider-Man issue from a future Marvel Comics star? No, who was it? Frank Brunner. Ah, yeah, okay, I did notice that. Yes, Frank Brunner wrote wrote a, yes, occasionally you will see future artists as well show up in in the letters columns. Frank Brunner uh, eventually goes on to be a key artist in the history of both uh, Doctor Strange and um, Howard the Duck. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So anyway, uh, yes, thank you for the reminder. I'd forgotten to bring that up earlier. (laughs) That's right. I'd forgotten about the whole thing where at one point in the Fantastic Four issue, Thing says, if I saw this in a comic book, I wouldn't believe it. Which, you know, I, I, I love that kind of meta stuff that Stan Lee can pull. All right. So uh, let us move on to Journey into Mystery. And yeah, okay. I really need to make this one quick because once again, we have the Cobra and Mr. Hyde. Um, so this is not going to be worth <laughs> spending much time on. On my notes on the cover, I go like, see the mysterious Mr. Hyde, see the Serpentine Cobra. I'm like, oh, Jesus, see the sinister Loki, see the noble Odin. I'm like, oh, good. I'm like, all right. So if we have to have Hyde and Cobra back, at least we have Loki and Odin back as well. And I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued if you yeah. want to mix and match. Combining, well, and, and let's see if we, let's see what good stuff we can get if we combine the best Thor villain, Loki, with two of the weakest Thor villains, Hyde and Cobra. And Loki has a history, both before this and after this, of using uh, sort of -of run-of-the-mill villains as his cat's paw to, uh, you know, take on Thor. Uh, So this is completely within character for him. So yes, this is the best and highest use for uh, (laughs) for, uh, Cobra Mr. Hyde. Yes. Loki comes to Earth and dresses in a suit and then pays the bail for Cobra and Mr. Hyde from their most recent um, arrest. Police are like, why are you doing this? He's like, doesn't matter. Here's the cash. We're good. So, I mean, I guess last month we had Executioner and Enchantress paying the bail of Simon Williams. So at this point in the New York City justice system, they are used to having random as guardians walk in and pay people's bail. And they're, this is this is something they're very used to at this point. They're like, oh, it's 
more Asgardian gold that you're giving us for uh, this bail hearing. That's perfectly all right. <laughs> so we then see Dr. Don Blake in his uh, medical practice. He and Jane seem really pretty flirtatious and kind of romantic with each other in this case. Again, the state of their relationship always is just jumping around. They never can figure out how to uh, really portray it. So Loki then lets uh, Mr. Hyde and Cobra know that he has, you know, know why he has sprung them. And then just as Odin will often say, take away half the power of Thor or of Executioner and Enchantress or something like that. Loki apparently is able to double the power of both Mr. Hyde and the Cobra. So I guess that means (laughs) that Mr. Hyde is now as strong as two dozen men. And the cobra is twice as bendy. Yes, like how how do you double cobra's powers? Cobra can stick to walls and bend. So he can now stick to walls twice as tightly as he stuck to them before, and he can bend twice as twice as bendily. Twice as bendily. He can bend into <laughs> into knots that are twice as tight as the knots he could twist himself into before. They never explain how one would double cobra's powers. Uh, maybe maybe his cobra darts are now twice as powerful. Yes, uh, cobra darts <laughs> not mentioned in this issue, but once again, cobra not showing any powers that have anything to do with cobras. So this is not the first time that that cobra and Hyde have interacted with Blake and Chain, but they just can't quite figure it out. And at this point, Loki says, "Well, if you want to get to Thor, you should kidnap Jane Foster again." And they're like, "Oh, right, we already knew that." And they're like, "Why would?" kidnap Jane Foster to get to Thor. Anyway, <laughs> let's do it. We're not we're not here to ask questions. Let's just do what you say and not try to put this very basic two and two together. So then Cobra slips in through the window and just yanks Jane out the window, uh, you know, in this high-rise building that they're in. Blake very quickly turns himself back into Thor. Uh, it looks on the first panel of page six almost like Cobra is flying. I guess he's yeah. supposed to be skittering along the sides of the buildings and maybe because he's twice as powerful he's able to you know it looks almost like flight i don't know a really good uh panel of thor flying on page six i like it when they have something a little bit different than the usual just i'm in a superman position except i've got my hammer out in front of me um and actually that looks a little simonson-ish yeah i mean to me one of the reasons i just always love thor is that this guy flinging him flinging himself around town, hanging onto a hammer is just a really interesting thing to draw. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. just <laughs> like, that's, you know, so much more fun than just Superman flying around is showing these a million and one ways they have showing a guy flinging himself around town with a hammer is I just like a delightful aspect of this hero. Thor quickly finds them because of course he was right behind them. And uh, they are using Jane as a hostage to keep uh, Thor from attacking them. But then they have this weird thing. They say, meet us again on the same corner in exactly 24 hours. At that time, you'll surrender your hammer to us and I'll finish you off forever. And now you have 24 hours to worry and to be powerless to do anything. How sweet is the fruit of victory? And it's just like... (sighs) Really, guys? I never know whether to blame Lee or Kirby or these same things happen in Dicko comics or to blame Dicko. I mean, I think clearly you have to blame Lee. He's the common currency here. But it's just so lame. You know, clearly there's sort of an editorial mandate here that the hero and the villain should fight each other 
once, and then that should be an inconsequential confrontation. And then the fight breaks off, and then it resumes about five pages later. And when Lee is just feeling really lazy, he just has this like, well, you know, we have no reason not to finish this fight right here and now, but we just want you to feel bad for a while. So we're going to kidnap this woman, not take her anywhere. We have no interest in doing anything with her. We're just going to take her away so that you can then worry. And this fight will end and we'll resume in five pages. And Lee just, if Kirby had a way of making this work in his own mind, he has not communicated it to Lee. And poor Lee, I don't know whether to feel sympathy for Lee because Kirby stuck him in a bad situation or to blame Lee here, but it does not work. It, you know, you get absolutely ridiculous dialogue, like the dialogue you just quoted, where they have to sort of explain (laughs) why this fight is being tabled for five pages when it really should just continue. So then we see uh, that Loki has returned to Asgard. I love that Loki is talking to Odin and Odin is watching a TV made of sticks. Uh, Is sticking out of like a Nautilus shell. (laughs) Yes, you've got a shell, a shell with a series of sticks sticking out of the shell, uh, forming a sort of crude frame of a television for Odin to be watching. It is pretty awesome. And, and this this is where I think we talked earlier about the Thor movies, how, you know, they very much went with this Kirby incarnation of Asgard. That's this weird combination of high tech and, you know, very and, you know, medieval. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 lovely stuff. And uh, he's got a decent helmet, I, I'd say. Uh, <laughs> but once again, Loki is using this to try to prove to Odin that Thor is now a coward and should not be favored in Odin's eyes anymore. So then Odin talks to him through time and space and says, there is no forgiveness in my heart. This time I order you banished from Asgard. So, uh, you know, he was already not in Asgard, so that's not going to affect him immediately, but uh, he is, of course, uh, upset by this whole thing. So he then comes back to Asgard, uh, runs into Heimdall, who has a uh, nice big H on his shield uh, that looks like it's made up of the tops of Thor's hammer over and over again. Yes. <laughs> so he tries to stop Thor from coming back because Thor has now been officially banished. He ends up getting into a whole big battle with all sorts of other different Asgardians here who are trying yeah, to chase him out because he's not supposed to be there. It is a truly awesome page on page 10 where he has to fight the entire hordes of Asgard in order to yes. go confront Loki. It is gorgeous. Yeah, and uh, that that the second, the bottom panel on page 10 is just pure Kirby. Yes. <laughs> and I'm thinking particularly the guy in the bottom left-hand corner who is like turning back and shouting to the rest of the crowd. Something about that particular element of this just is, you can't get more Kirby than that. Uh, oh, and and we just really, really have to appreciate it because we've already got Kleda on the back half of the book and Kleda's about to take over the front half of the book. And this beautifully inked page by Chickstone is what we're about to lose for almost the rest of the Kirby run in Thor. We're going to have Kleda ruining the book. And we just have to appreciate these last few Chickstone issues while we have them. And I do I do like the little, uh, I hadn't noticed it earlier, but the little like dragon ornament on the top of the helmet of that guy I was just pointing out on that page. Uh, yeah, I had not realized that was part of his helmet. <laughs> Once again, just those silly little things that uh, that he can put in there, that Kirby can put in. Thor fights his way through all of these warriors of Asgard to get to Loki. Tell me where the stuff is. You know, you, you need to let me know. And so he's like, oh, yeah, sure. Here it is. A lonely estate in the Jersey Highlands is where they're holding uh, Jane. I like how Loki 
is like, oh, Thor has fought all of the hordes of Asgard to see me. Oh, I suppose I'll tell you some things. I'm just sitting here sniffing a carnation while, uh, <laughs> while you talk to me. And it's like, that's, you know, like I can barely be bothered to, to, to stop sniffing carnations long enough to tell you this information you need to know. So he then shows up at the place where Jane is being held hostage, comes in, and there's all sorts of death traps that have been set up in this place, presumably by Loki, I would think. Fights Cobra and Mr. Hyde. I don't really think we need to get too much into uh, that battle. But Thor then sees that Jane uh, looks like she has been buried in a pile of rubble, and he starts freaking out. Thor then is able to stop time with Mjolnir. And we've seen him do stuff involving time before, right? He's traveled to the future mm-hmm. with Zarkon, and I think he's traveled to the past too. You know, not the first time we've seen him pull this trick, but he has stopped time so that Jane will not uh, keep on getting closer to death. And we're left with a cliffhanger. Cobra and Hyde are still loose in this castle or in this uh, estate or wherever they are. Um, you know, Loki's plan is still working its way through to its conclusion, and Odin has not yet made a decision on whether or not he is going to withdraw his favor from Thor. So yeah. uh, we will find out more next issue. Yeah, I think this issue is fine. Cobra and Hyde are just plot devices here, which is a much better than actually focusing the story on them. It's still yes. largely a Loki-Odin story, and I always like Loki-Odin stories, and I think this is a good Sorry, I think it's beautifully inked by Chick Stone, nicely co-potted and drawn by Kirby, nicely scripted and co-potted by Lee. I enjoyed this story quite a bit. Yep. Um, so this is, again, another, to me personally, disappointing issue of Tales of Asgard. It's the defeat of Odin. <laughs> Although I will point out that on the splash page uh, here, Right behind Thor is a warrior who is just has his arms crossed across his chest while he's riding the horse. I'm like, <laughs> doesn't he? Oh, no, no, no. Sorry, that's an optical. That, that's just uh, Vince Coletta not doing a good job. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you're right. I can. It, it's that that is classic yeah. bad uh, inking. He doesn't have his arms folded, but the way Coletta has inked it. It does look like he has his arms folded, yes. It, it could have been saved by the colorist, but, you know, that's that's asking a bit much for coloring in this particular uh, era. Yes, so, the, the uncredited colorist can't be much like, you're not even going to give me a credit on the comic. I'm not going to save nothing. Right. Uh, so uh, I, I'm i tempted to just go through and do a very quick um, yes, uh, by all means thing do. on this. Um, so essentially, the whole thing about the defeat of Odin is there's some rebellious faction of, I believe it's in Asgard, um, or, you know, some, one of the, one of the nine realms uh, that Odin is uh, fighting. And essentially Odin just decides, oh, well, you know what? People need hope in all of their, you know, hope to win freedom and stuff like that. So I won't beat them so that people can still have hope that they could possibly beat me. I'm like, okay. Fine. <laughs> it's um, a bizarre story. It is a bizarre really moral. Is. Yeah, I mean, it's like, because right away, I like how we can have a battle in which there are sympathetic people and complex people on both sides. And we begin with that right away, where we've got Odin and Thor riding in an army, and they need to decide whether or not they're going to charge against a boiling plane. And then we cut to the guy who is leading the army against them, and he is sick with fear, it says. He is someone who is you know, sick with fear, the thought of facing Odin's warriors, and yet I must not shirk my duty. And he is, you know, has to eventually show some courage. And then 
Odin decides it is very important to him that that it's like, oh, I don't want my enemies to lose heart. <laughs> like, yes, you do. <laughs> like, you, that's not how life works. One does not want one's. It's one thing if like, I was like, is this supposed to be a human? Is this supposed to be Midgard? And he wants people on Midgard to not be overly beholden to their gods. It is unclear where this is set, what is going on. It is an odd story, but yeah. I find it somewhat likable. I like the idea of us and ultimately Odin sympathizing with this other person on the other side of this battle. And I think it's bizarrely written. I think it's a bizarre conclusion, but I like the core concept. I like the idea of a battle in which we recognize the nobility of the people fighting Odin. I just not sure it makes sense for him to recognize that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Overall, not a bad issue of Thor. As you said, you know, at first you're like, ugh, hiding Cobra. But then it's like, oh, okay. But this is the same kind of way that Loki uses characters like Absorbing Man or The Wrecker or something like that, where it's just like, oh, here's a, you know, sort of low rent human villain that I can use to, uh, you know, battle Thor from afar so that I don't get my hands dirty. And, uh, and it turns out nicely. I like it. Okay, so let's go ahead and move on. So um, we are now moving on to Strange Tales. So right. why don't you take it away? Let's go and do Strange Tales number 26. On the cover, Thing and Johnny are clearly the lead feature, and Doctor Strange, the sub-feature, we see Thing and Johnny on the cover fighting. Once again, the team-up we last saw, I guess it was when the X-Men teamed up with Fantastic Four, they fought Man-Thinker teamed up with Puppet Master. We've got, right. once again, the Thinker and Puppet Master here pitting Ben and Johnny against each other on the cover, and then in a smaller thing on the cover, they say, and for our second great feature, Doctor Strange at last invades the domain of the Dread Dormammu or Dormammu, or however you want to pronounce it. Although, right away we can see on the cover something very strange from the inside is that Dormammu has a blue head instead of a red head. But and Kirby isn't really getting the surreal dreamscapes. It looks a little too high-tech Yes, in his rendition of that. Yes, Kirby does cover, and uh, so we, it's interesting. We see Kirby's Dormammu and Kirby's Dark Dimension before we see Dicko's, because he gets to draw the cover. So then... We come into the issue. So once again, it is just a heartbreaker to me that Dick Harris is a good penciler and Paul Reinman is a great anchor. And they just look so terrible when paired together. I don't know yeah. why they're so terrible. I don't know what goes wrong here. But we have another just horrible looking issue penciled by Harris, inked by Reinman, written to an extent by Stan Lee. I like Thinker and Puppet Master. I think Thinker is a easy character to characterize well. I think he's got a big personality and has really fun verbal conceit to him where he is always predicting things happening at various split seconds. And Puppet Master is, is also a well-conceived character, but this is just a sort of retread of a story we had not that long ago in Fantastic Four of them working together. Again, the Mad Thinker is sort of telling Puppet Master what to do, but he, what he's telling Puppet Master is something that anybody can figure out. You don't have to be a Mad <laughs> Thinker to figure these out. He's like, well, you should use your clay and it to make models of the Fantastic Four and have them attack each other. And it's like, well, yes, I was already doing that long before I ever met you, Mad Thinker. Is that really the best thinking you can do here? But, uh, and then it's like, he'll say, like, use this precise amount of clay. And it's like, going, yeah, I, I know. I know, dude. So then Johnny and Ben are on their way to a double date with Alicia and Dory, but Puppet Master takes control of Ben and has him try to kill Johnny. It works. Johnny is falling to his death, but then Thing becomes Ben Grimm, and that breaks the spell, and he's able to flip his car around quickly enough to catch Johnny before he falls all the way. However, 
at this point, the Mad Thinker and Puppet Master have stopped watching because they're like, shut off the view screen. I do not enjoy the sight of physical violence. It is enough that we have triumphed. So whoops, they missed that they did not triumph. We then have Ben and Johnny go home to read and sue. And this is basically just getting to be a secondary Fantastic Four comic. It seems like every issue now we end up with all four Fantastic Four hanging out here. And it's like, well, how is this different from the Fantastic Four comic? And sure enough, Reed pretty much saves the day here and says, takes back out the Thought Projector helmet that we had a couple issues ago. And it's interesting. They basically, I like, by the way, the seaside little house that Mad Thinker and Puppet Master are living in. It's sort of a neat piece of modern design on, on page 10. But mm-hmm. we have an interesting story where the heroes and the villains never meet. Basically, Reed's like, well, next time he tries to take you over, uh, use my device and send some feedback through the loop. Uh, and so indeed they do, and they sh- shut down Puppet Master by sending some feedback instead of him taking over. And then the issue just sort of ends. They never confront Puppet Master and Man Thinker. Nobody gets arrested. Nobody gets sent to prison. It's just a very lame issue. It's a very lame and consequential issue in which it's like, oh, I'll try to take you over once, and then I'll try to take you over again, and that time there will be a feedback, and the feedback will defeat me. And it is tremendously lame. This is a terrible first half of this book. One cannot blame any kid who just completely gave up and tossed the comic across the street. Little dreaming of how absolutely wonderful the second half of this issue would be. Yes. Just a couple of observations. One is that uh, on page 12 is that other example of Reed just being surly at one point. You know, he's got things strapped into a thing that the thing is going to give the feedback loop or whatever. He says, rats, just tell me one blamed thing. Why is it always me? Reed says, probably because you're so good natured and uncomplaining. Now keep your mouth shut if it's possible. <laughs> I'm like, that, OK, that's a little harsh even for Reed. <laughs> he, he, he is uh, he's not having a good month on page five, uh, panel four. Johnny, at one point, is thinking to himself, strong as he is, my big buddy, Ben, isn't much on flying all by himself, I mean. It's like, wasn't Ben a World War II fighter pilot? Wasn't he the one who piloted the starship that ended up having the fateful uh, stuff happen to it? But he's not much on flying? Yeah. <laughs> uh that that just really jumped out at me is like have you met these characters before do you know anything about them so yeah underwhelming issue if uh you know at best well that didn't you share another panel from this issue it's like so so yeah at one point puppet master says i knew it i was afraid of this i told you the fantastic four are unbeatable and the mad thinker says balderdash they're no more unbeatable than the mets look how easily we attacked them how close we came to success and the mets were having a a like historically awful year that year and people well, the mets had been the terrible is. i think the mets were only like four years old at this point and right. had been terrible every year and they were just and they they were like they were know, particularly this terrible this year <laughs> okay yeah i mean yeah they, they were it was really bad okay so let's move on to dr strange all right, now let's move on to Marvel's best book this month and one of the all-time great Marvel comics. We have had quite some time where Doctor Strange, starting, I think, in his very first appearance, has occasionally said, I will do this by the power of Dormammu. And he has been invoking the power of Dormammu to help him do things. Well, it turns out that he has been playing with fire. And indeed, you see this in the Doctor Strange movie, where it turns out that all of the Ancient Ones disciples have been sort of, even though they don't realize it, relying on Dormammu's powers. So that is the source of the Ancient One's powers in the Doctor Strange movie. 
And just as in that movie where Dormammu then comes at Coleman, and it turns out this was not a guy you want to be making any sort of deals with, the same thing finally happens in this issue as well. You finally get to meet the Dread Dormammu. We have the domain of the Dread Dormammu, and we have just a gorgeous opening page of just not actually what's happening in the issue, but just prefiguring what's going to happen of Doctor Strange entering the Dark Dimension. The Dark Dimension the greatest of all Dicko dimensions, I oh, think. Yeah. The greatest of all Dicko locations is Dormammu's Dark Convention, which we meet in this issue. We then go ahead and jump back. We see him. Seemingly, he comes home. Now, he had just rescued the Ancient One, and then he is thinking as if he is only now returning to his body. It's good to be home again now that I know the evil Baron Mordo has been defeated once more. And yet, as soon as he gets home, he is called to go rescue the Ancient One, who apparently also rushed home quickly enough to then get in danger again. Doctor Strange is sucked through a portal to the Ancient One's place in Tibet, and turns out the Ancient One is not actually being attacked, but he is just talking to a messenger. We see Doctor Strange, you know, obviously Kirby more into Thrones than Dicko is, but we see Doctor Strange sitting, waiting for his ectoplasmic form back on a pretty cool-looking throne, and then he gets sucked two panels later into the Ancient One's place, where the Ancient One has... Uh, a relaxing throne, a throne that is made for <laughs> sort of a fainting couch. It is made for laying back on. So then the ancient one saying, oh, no, that was a messenger from Dormammu. And I found out that he is about to come to Earth and you have to stop him. And Dr. Strange is like, I will do it. I will go stop him. So then we he enters the dark dimension on page three right away. We get this awesome sort of sentinel guarding the barrier to the dark dimension, this huge red stone guardian four armed i guess is that yeah four six well sort of five armed thing <laughs> i no six arms okay there's six arms in there i thought that later when this shows up when paul smith is drawing the book that he had invented this thing because he draws the hell out of it but no here it is dicko invents it and it is absolutely gorgeous and doctor strange then has to go through this portal and then he enters the dark dimension and the dark dimension is even more awesome panel page four panel four uh just with all of those ribbon like those roads that strange is walking on that are like folding ribbons and then these other sort of loop-de-loops and between each of the loops of some other sort of ribbon is another dimension it looks like and things are you know it's, yes. it's just it's just insane and uh you know I, I can really see how this became a favorite comic of the psychedelic drug crowd um which you know as we've talked about apparently horrified uh the very straight laced square steve ditko <laughs> i mean look at that it's nuts yeah no it is absolutely trippy i mean this is an essentially conservative-minded guy you know in many ways a far-right winger but someone who is just inherently trippy this is a trippy dude that he is able to come up with this stuff <laughs> and so then as i said we then beat Dormammu, who, you know, I think of wearing a purple costume with a flaming red head. He's got a, I think they're supposed to be flames, but it's blue, blue flame for the head. So then, uh, wait, wait, where are you seeing blue? They may have corrected that here. Which page are you looking at? Every page in this issue, Dormammu has a blue head instead of a red head. Okay, no, they they changed it to yellow flame on a red head in the in the uh, online version. Huh, We've okay. got blue flame on a blue head. It's uh, it's very strange. And then yeah. is his outfit is his outfit purple or green? It's purple. It's green here. So then, Dormammu says, "I'm going to go ahead and take care of Doctor Strange. He is his underlings are defying him, and he is 
fusing them into cubes and then wrapping them up in the crimson bands of Cytorek. So then he sends various creatures after Doctor Strange. We get absolutely gorgeous art from Dicko of Strange defeating the various creatures. Meanwhile, now it's interesting, when Dicko draws the Dark Dimension, there are no streets or roads or buildings or anything like that. Everything is crazy and trippy all the time. We only ever see, when Dicko draws the Dark Dimension, one other inhabitant of the Dark Dimension, which is Clea. So then we get our first glimpse of Clea, who will go on to become a major character in the Doctor Strange mythos, one who has only showed up in the Doctor Strange movies in the post-credit sequence of the second Doctor Strange film, where she showed up played by Charlize Theron, who I had not had that spoiled for me, and I was absolutely <laughs> amazed and delighted to see Charlize Theron show up as Clea and take Doctor Strange into a dark dimension at the end of the second movie. But here we have Clea, you know, not looking like Charlie Sarah and looking like a delightfully Dicko-esque, you know, Dicko gets a lot of crap for his drawings of pretty women. Here is Dicko having to draw a pretty woman. And I think he does a delightful job. She is, you know, Dicko pretty. And she is weird. She is tremendously weird. She has this very <laughs> weirdly curly hair. But yes. I like his Clea. I think that his Clea is maybe not Fava Foom, but I think that she is bewitching. Yeah, I, I will give you that. I know I am one of the ones who will usually pile on uh, Ditko for not being able to draw pretty women when it, it is, well, conventionally pretty women when a conventionally pretty woman is what is called for. Uh, but yeah, uh, he, he does a very good job with Clea here. I will, I will grant you that. Later, when Roger Stern is writing the book and Paul Smith is drawing it, there will be a whole storyline about Clea returning to the Dark Dimension to lead a revolution against, well, not Dormammu, but Dormammu's sister, Umar, who was running it at the time. And at the time, they will go ahead and just show daily life in the Dark Dimension with, you know, people living on crowded streets and cities and things like that. But so far, we we do not have a sense of that here. We have you know, everything is completely weird all the time. And seemingly for the first 20 years of this comic, Dormammu and Clea seem to be, well, Dormammu and Clea, and then eventually Yumar seem to be the only inhabitants of the Dark Dimension. But so then we see Clea watching Doctor Strange going like, oh my God, this guy's trying to fight Dormammu. Is he crazy? I'm going to try to stop him. So she watches Doctor Strange fight various magical creatures. And finally she reaches out to Doctor Strange and it's like, dude, you have to stop. I don't know what you're even trying to do. And Doctor Strange is like, uh, whatever. See ya. I'm still going to go fight Dormammu. She says, but you cannot know what you will face. In all the universe, there's none like Dormammu. And he says, that is why I must not shirk nor falter. Dormammu must never set foot upon the planet Earth. Right. So then he goes to fight Dormammu, and we end on a cliffhanger. Uh, now, of course, we're about to begin in, I think, three or four issues. We're going to finish up this two-part storyline of Dormammu, and then there's going to be a couple of non-Dormammu issues, and then we are going to have the beginning of the first great Marvel Comics epic a 12-part year-long storyline where Dormammu and Baron Mordo team up. And this is a little preview. This two-part story is a little tasting of the huge Dormammu epic that we have coming up. But that is not yet, and Clea will return in that storyline as well. But first, we have the end of this one part. I think that this is one of the all-time great Marvel comics. I think this is Dormammu is one of the all-time great characters. And here we have Peak Dicko. I think this may be yes. Dicko's, you know, one of Dicko's best issues he ever penciled and inked. And of course, I should say that the previous three issues had been inked by George Bell and had not, you know, had been the three weakest looking issues of Dicko's run on Doctor Strange. 
and now he has returned to the inking just in time for Lee's greatest story, if we want to give Lee any credit as plotter of the book, and certainly a scripter of the book, and then he has, he thankfully is back on the book inking just in time for a truly great story. Yes, and I, I, yeah, I, I do have to say you could definitely make an argument that this issue has the most peak psychedelic Ditko panels of any issue. Right? Yes. <laughs> it's just all of his adventures through the dark domain, uh, dark dimension in this issue are just mind blowing. And uh, I really can see how, you know, as I said, how the psychedelic drug crowd would have just, um, you know, blown their lids over this stuff. Well, I should say that they aren't consistent as how they refer to it. They do call it the dark domain. They do call it the dark realm. They do call it the dark dimension. They, okay. uh, they, they go, they're all over the map in terms of how they refer to it. Uh, the various kinds of portals that they have in the dark domain are just fascinating. There's page six. Uh, there's a couple of panels where he's falling through what looks like a flying carpet, but it's actually a window to some other place. Right towards the end of this issue, yeah, it's on the very last page of the story. In panel two, after he's told Clea, sorry, baby, I gotta go do what I gotta go to do, he walks once again through something that looks like a big floppy piece of paper that's hanging out in space. And then you see him coming into Dormammu's presence and there's just, Ditko has just drawn a vertical line cutting off the rest of, uh, you know, his back leg and all of his cloak there. And <laughs> it's just, you know, in this world where everything is just swirly and curly and trippy and moving, then just the, the inclusion of that one ruler straight line of, you know, it's just instantly clear what he's communicating there that he's coming out of this window out of somewhere and it, it's just really mind-blowing uh the the art in this issue it's gorgeous yeah all right i guess it is time to move on to the next one here okay well let's go ahead and wrap up first that episode of the podcast okay everybody that let's we are going out on a high note with the story of Dharma Moo. that is the first half of November 1964. It has taken us a long time to get through 1964. <laughs> we are, uh, we, we, after this episode, we'll still have three episodes from 1964 yet to go. Originally, you know, the plan had been, we're going to do an episode every week. We're going to cover a month per week and we're going to be done with the sixties before you know it. And no, that is not the case. We are going to end up basically spending a year on every year of normal comics. And, uh, but we are getting, getting, we can see, Three more episodes after this one, we can see the end of 1964 coming up. But I think this was, <laughs> we had some fantastic work in these four books, uh, certainly, especially from Dicko, amazing Dicko, Spider-Man, and Doctor Strange, and pretty good Kirby Fantastic Four, okay Kirby Thor, and um, certainly terrible Human Torch. But a good, a good four issues, and then let's go ahead and keep recording you and I, and let's do the back half of November 1964. But first, we will say goodbye to everybody. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Take care. Stay safe out there. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. 
Go to MarbleRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.